Go ahead and turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 35. It's kind of been the tradition over the years that on this Sunday preceding Christmas, I would take a break from whatever we were looking at normally and focus on some aspect of the Incarnation. And there's good reasons to do that. Nothing wrong with that, of course. This year, just by the providence of God, it seems that we've come into a passage that in our study of John fits within that theme of who Jesus is and what He's done and what the Incarnation is all about so well that we're continuing with the study. So John chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35 to give us the context. So Jesus said to them, that is to all of these Jews at the Passover, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Christ's, glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Help us understand the weighty realities that are in this text of your word given to us that we might see and believe and respond with repentance and faith. Awaken us. Don't let us lose this moment. Don't let us waste it. Don't let the seed fall by the wayside, but let us see Jesus. Amen. Seeing the glory of Christ. That's what that's what Christmas is all about. It's what we're, we're here to do this morning. To remember how He came as light, breaking into our darkness. Uh, just as Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. It's what Jesus was, was warning them about where we ended last time in John 12, 35 to 36 that I just read. That, that the, light, the light is here now. So, so, so he says, open your eyes and, and see while you still can. See Him in His glory. Believe Him while you have opportunity, for soon that opportunity will be taken away and you'll be left in darkness. I think it's one of those puzzling things in the world to consider the power of unbelief to hold fast to the mind that simply 
refuses to see the glory of Christ blazing right in front of them. But that's the condition of of every human heart locked in sin. As Paul says, Romans 1.21, he says, For although they knew God, right, because the heavens and the earth and all around them declare His presence, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Creation itself screams the glory of God with every breath, and yet darkened hearts refuse to see. Now that's the issue that John is wrestling with here in this 12th chapter as he closes out the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry in Jerusalem. He's wrestling with the fact that spiritually blinded eyes cannot cannot see the glory of God. Verse 37, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. That was puzzling to people in the first century. How can this be, they would say? If Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, then why didn't His own people believe in Him? I mean, was it... Was it a lack of evidence? Well, no, John says in verse 37, he had done many signs right in front of them. Verse 37, you could even translate that right in their face. And so John, in fact, you remember how John's gospel is organized. He he, he takes us through a series of these signs, these these pointers that that point the way to who Jesus is and and show us His glory, His his deity. I mean, who else can turn water into wine or make the blind man see or the lame man walk? Who can feed the hungry or raise the dead? Yet in spite of all that, John says, they still refused to believe. Such is the blindness of the unbelieving heart. Here is the glory of God shining brightly in the face of Christ, but like blind shepherds, had there been any in Bethlehem the night that the angels exploded in glory, they wouldn't see it. And these can't see it. And so the question he's wrestling with is, why? Have the prophecies failed? Has Jesus just not done enough? To convince them? No, no, that's not it, John says. There's a deeper reason for their unbelief. Look at it, verse 37. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. The refusal of people to believe was not a failure of God's word. It was the fulfillment of God's Word. That's what John is saying. Because this is exactly what God told Isaiah would happen when the Messiah came. His own people would reject Him. In fact, you remember John told us that at the very beginning of this Gospel, John 1.11 says, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But it's not just John who tells us that with the, with, the, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, looking back on these events as he is doing. No, no. 
Isaiah prophesied that this would be the case. And that's why John quotes him here. This is a quote in verse 38. It's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, you know this passage, right? Isaiah 53? You you probably do, even if it's not clicking just yet. Because this, this is exactly... This is that famous passage in Isaiah where the prophet describes the coming sufferings of Jesus in such startling detail. How he will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. How he'll be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds we will be healed. But before he gives that description... Isaiah says in verse 1 of that chapter, Isaiah 53, but who is even going to believe our message? Who who will make this vital connection between this death and the strong arm of the Lord in salvation? No, Isaiah saw this coming. And John, reading Isaiah, understands, again, that the, the unbelief of these people is not the failure of Scripture to be true, It is the fulfillment of Scripture's truth. But that's not all Isaiah has to say here. John goes on to quote him a second time in verse 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now this is one of those hard sayings of Scripture. Do you see why I say that? Because here John doesn't just say that they won't believe. He tells us very plainly that they cannot believe. That their faith at this point is indeed... Faith at this point is is, is impossible for them. That, That no matter how much evidence is given to them, no matter what Jesus does in giving these signs, they're not going to believe it. Now, Now why is that? The reason, John tells us, is because God, in an act of judgment on their unbelief, has withheld from them even the ability to believe at all. This is what is called the judicial hardening of God. And it is one of God's most terrifying judgments. That this is when God takes a people who have hardened themselves against His message and removes from them all capacity to hear and understand and believe. That's a very cheerful thought at Christmas, isn't it? But someone says, Well, I don't believe that God would do that. Do you not? Have you never read of Pharaoh? How in the Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and against God's messenger? In Exodus chapter 8 and then Exodus chapter 9. But when we get to Exodus chapter 10, we're told that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart in an act of judicial hardening. And from that time on, Pharaoh is indeed doomed. God's mercy is withheld and he stands judged forever, which, by the way, is the condition of all mankind apart from grace. The Apostle Paul, looking back on that incident in Exodus, tells us in Romans 9.18 that God in His sovereignty then has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. And there is the plight of man apart from the mercy of God. 
Friend, listen, God is not someone to be trifled with. You must believe while you have opportunity. You're not guaranteed another opportunity. Uh, Like Pharaoh, you can be hardened beyond hope today. Today, Scripture says, is the day of salvation. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was warning them at the the beginning of that passage that I read, back in verse 35 and 36? He says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness, the one for whom the lights have been turned out, doesn't know where he's going. He can't even see that there is a way of salvation. So while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so according to John, that point of judgment has been reached by these Jews in Jerusalem. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they believe and see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is a quote from Isaiah also. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. And again, I think this is a passage most of you would be familiar with, even if you're not thinking about what it is exactly right now, because this, this is that place where Isaiah receives his commission to go and preach repentance to the wayward nation of Israel. Remember, it begins with this terrifying vision of God in His holiness, high and exalted, seating on His throne, surrounded by worshiping angels, And Isaiah sees this, falls on his face, confesses his sin and is cleansed as the angel goes to the altar of sacrifice and brings a coal to touch his lips and to atone for his sin. And it's then that Isaiah hears the voice of God speaking. Isaiah 6, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Do you see, Isaiah is warned that even as he goes out in obedience to God to faithfully proclaim God's message, they will not believe because they're hardened do do you you understand one of the realities in this world is that the same word that brings repentance to some hardens others God's word will either break you in pieces and bring you to faith and repentance through the mercy of Christ or it will harden you further for judgment to come And John's warning to his generation is that they, just like the people of Isaiah's day, were in fact at that place of hardening. And oh, my soul grieves to think of this present generation where I see so many apparently reaching that same place of of hardness, of terminal hardness. I'm not God. I can't see where that's taken place. Praise God there is hope in the gospel. But dear one, hear and believe. And so the light of God's glory is shining in the face of Christ right there in the temple courts, yet so few of them see it. Which brings us to the second thing. We need some hope now, right? Because that's pretty dark. 
The prophet Isaiah saw Christ's glory and wrote of Him. Verse 41 there on the page is truly amazing as you begin to think hard about what Isaiah is saying. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw His, that is Christ's glory, and spoke of Him. Now now think about what that says. When did Isaiah see Christ's glory? I mean, Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ's incarnation. Yet John says, Isaiah saw Christ's glory and wrote about it. So when did he see Christ's glory? Well, the key is to look at these two quotes John gives us from Isaiah. This is what Isaiah saw and wrote. And so first of all, we can see that Isaiah saw Christ's glory by means of prophecy. That first quote, remember, is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Why don't you turn there? Let's just go to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 1. We've seen many times in the last few weeks. You know that without, without any doubt, Isaiah saw more of the beauty and the suffering of Christ than any prophet who ever lived. I mean, quite literally, we could spend hours going line by line through this chapter just marveling at the clarity He sees coming. And indeed, I would encourage you to do that. If you've not read through this chapter recently, I would would encourage you to take some time this week and just meditatively, prayerfully walk through this passage, thinking hard about what this is telling you about Christ. Because here in Isaiah 53, we see Christ in all His suffering glory as His sacrificial love is poured out so very lavishly for us sinners. I mean, again, this is one of those passages that is so very worth your time to just prayerfully walk through it. Because here is Christ in all of His suffering glory. So let me just read part of it. Isaiah 53, I'll start in verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. By the way, there's the resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Their salvation by faith alone. And he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah saw Christ in His suffering glory through means of prophecy. But I believe John has more in mind than just prophecy here. Because remember, there is a second quote from Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 6. And honestly, this one is truly mind-blowing. So let's turn to that one. Isaiah chapter 6. Because what we find here is that Isaiah saw Christ's glory not only by means of prophecy, but he saw Him in person seated high upon His throne. Isaiah 6, 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Now, you, most of you, I think, are familiar with this scene. It's, it's one of those defining moments in the Old Testament where God's majesty is on bright display. But I want to make sure you see it well this morning. So why don't we do this? Why don't you stand with me? We don't usually do this, but I want, I'm going to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 because I want you to hear. In the year that King Uzziah died, which was a year of turmoil and uncertainty for the Jewish people, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. I mean, I love that thought. Who's the king now? What's going to happen? Oh, there he is. Seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And it's then that he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You can be seated. Now immediately as we began this passage in verse 1, there is a problem with it. Do you see it? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now do you see the problem with that? Scripture tells us throughout both the Old and the New Testament that no one has ever seen God. No mortal human like us can see God in His naked glory and survive. John even reminded us of that in John 1.18 when he said, No one has ever seen God. I mean, that's pretty plain. And John wrote that 700 years after Isaiah said this. And so either that's a contradiction, we have a problem between these two who are saying opposite things, or there's another explanation. John gives us the explanation in the second part of that verse of John 1.18. There, John says, No one has ever seen God, but, and I'm going to be literal here, the one and only Son, that is the one who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now what's that saying? 
And see, here's where you have to think biblically and theologically if you're going to get this. No one has ever seen God in His naked glory as God. But, John says, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is God and has been God for all eternity, the one who is that Word who became flesh, He has made God known. He has made the invisible God seeable. Now, you've got to think in terms of the Trinity to understand a passage like this. And I'll just remind you that as a Christian, you must always think of God in terms of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God existing eternally as three persons. One of the great weaknesses in evangelicalism today is this tendency we have to talk about a generic kind of plain vanilla God up there in the clouds somewhere who's not exactly in our thinking the Father or the Son or the Spirit, just plain old God. But dear one, what I want you to understand is you have never met plain old God. You have never had an encounter with God anywhere in Scripture or in life as a plain vanilla God. All your dealings with God from Scripture, from life, has been this God. The Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. One God existing eternally as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so the story of Christmas is the good news that God the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, sent God the Son to be seen by us. He was seen in the manger. He was seen by the disciples. He was seen by the crowds in Jerusalem through the miracle of the Incarnation where God the Son took to Himself the nature of a human being and became one of us. And even now today, He can be seen by us as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to believe and find life in Him through the Gospel. And so God is seen in the person of Christ. Now, Back to the statement in verse 41. So, again, where did Isaiah see Christ's glory? He saw it when he saw Him seated on the throne, high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. Now think of that. Here's the question. So who was the God Isaiah saw on the throne reigning in glory? It was Jesus Christ. It was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a generic deity, but specifically God the Son, your Savior. Now think about that. So when we talk about the glory of Christ, this is what we mean. We mean the Son of God seated on His throne in blinding holiness, worshipped by angels in stunning glory. I mean, did you know that was Him? Christ is the one who displays the glory of God for us to see because He Himself is the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.6 talks about the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's interesting. The rabbis in ancient times struggled with this. There are dark documents called the, the Targums, and that's just a, 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 an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament 
There are targums where the, the rabbis talk about what Isaiah saw in his vision, but they, they, they couldn't bring themselves to say that what he saw was actually the Lord because that would be blasphemy. They knew no one can see God. And so instead, they would retranslate it, they would repackage it, and they would say, what Isaiah saw was not the Lord, but the glory of the Lord, the the Shekinah of God, the the visible manifestation of God's glory. And then they would go on to talk about that glory as if it were a person. And John comes along and says, exactly! And I know His name. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that Isaiah saw on the throne was Christ. But more than that, go back to something else we've seen along the way in John. Remember how Jesus several times says, I am. As in, I am the I am. I am the God Moses met in the desert. So another question, who was the God Moses saw in the bush? It was Christ. And who was that heavenly person who came along with two angels to visit Abraham in Genesis 18, whom the Scripture calls the Lord? Again, it was Christ. This is Christ's glory. This is His majesty. This is who came to offer His life for us in our sin. In fact, look at what John has done here by putting Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 side by side like this. And and again, you see something very amazing. What what John is tipping us off to here is that the, the, the same glorious God Isaiah saw reigning on His throne in Isaiah 6 is the one He proclaims as suffering for us in Isaiah 53 as he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with suffering. I mean, right? That's mind-blowing. That Christ would leave so much for us in our sin. I mean, you talk about a gift of inestimable value. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. What love! What mercy! I mean, you'd think anybody who heard about this would come running to take hold of Him, to to treasure Him and to receive from Him this grace and mercy in salvation. And yet we're told... Verse 41 and 43, that while many did see His glory, they refused to acknowledge Him out of fear. John 12, verse 41 to 43, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from from God. Now, did you notice there's, a, there's hope in that passage, but there's also a warning. Uh, first of all, there is hope in the very fact that many did believe in Him. Therefore, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. Now think about that. Even in the face of God's judgment on this nation, even in the face of this judicial act of God withholding faith on that nation, still there is mercy streaming because some do believe. And I I think that's always true until the final day. No matter what the state of judgment is against a culture, God is still a saving God. 
As long as we have the gospel, we have hope to offer. So don't ever lose sight of the fact that that, that no matter how dark it gets, there's a light shining in the darkness. The gospel of Jesus is saving still. It says some, no, no, it doesn't say, it says many do believe. And yet you'll notice there's a problem, isn't there? Do you see it? Many believe, yet they refuse to confess Him out of fear. Many, even of the authorities, believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. What's wrong with these people? Well, for many, and you'll understand this, they just feel like they have too much to lose to go around claiming Christ. It says many of these authorities believed in Him. Now, who do you think he's talking about? Who's the many he has in mind here? Well, we don't know. Authorities probably mean Sanhedrin, some of those in the upper council. And in fact, we know two of their names, don't we? Nicodemus came to him at night in John chapter 3 and we track along with Nicodemus and he appears to be coming to faith and finally at the end after Jesus is put to death Nicodemus is there at the grave helping to care for his body and standing right next to him is another member of the council whom we're actually told became a believer though in secret at first Joseph of Arimathea. So, So certainly these two but certainly more because two doesn't make many and yet at this point they're unwilling to confess Jesus openly. Why not? Fear. Out of fear of the Pharisees that they would be put out of the synagogue, they kept their mouths shut. Fear of what they might lose kept them from confessing Christ. Why? Why? What were they afraid of? Well, they were afraid of losing status. They were afraid of losing friends. They were afraid of being excluded from the culture around them. I mean, in that day, to be cast out of the synagogue was no little thing. It, it didn't just mean you didn't get to go and show up for worship in a building called the synagogue. It meant you could no longer do business in that town. You could no longer have friends because they would shun you. You, you could no longer function in society at all. To, to be a part of a synagogue in a typical Jewish town was to be included in the life of that community. To be cast out was to become an outcast. I mean, you think cancel culture is something new. I assure you it's not. The Pharisees were the doorkeepers to the synagogue. You run afoul of them, you're just out. And so that power over the life of the Jewish community gave them the power to intimidate those who crossed them. It gave them the power to silence whoever disagreed with them. And again, does that sound kind of familiar to you? You ever feel anything like that these days? These were men who controlled by means of fear. The Pharisees still do that today. Do you recognize I don't just mean religious Pharisees, though we still have plenty of those to go around. But I mean secular Pharisees that we're seeing practically everywhere today, right? The cultural enforcers who demand that you toe the line politically and socially on an ever-expanding list of issues from LGBTQ issues uh, to um, abortion, you, you name it, you are told you must toe the line or be silent. 
And then it's that fear of being put out of the synagogue, of being ostracized, of being canceled, right, that keeps many silent. But you see, here's the problem. You can't keep silent about Christ for long and maintain any kind of credible confession of Christ. Sooner or later you must choose whose glory matters to you. Isn't that what he says? Verse 43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you understand that the Christian faith is not just an inward private thing? It's not just a matter of your own private confession. It is by its very nature something that must be public. It it, it is a matter of your heart's affection. Who do you love? Who do you honor with your life and your words and your actions? Whose glory comes first? Which is why Scripture warns us that sooner or later you must stand for Christ and you must do so openly. Let the chips fall where they may. Isn't that what Jesus warned in Matthew 10.32? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sooner or later... A genuine faith must go public. Dr. James Hamilton made this comment. He said, Speaking of these who would not speak, they loved the glory they received from human beings more than the glory of God. They preferred their reputation among people to being right with God and enjoyed the abundant and enjoying the abundance of His grace. They chose the temporary rather than the eternal, the paltry instead of the substantial, the unworthy instead of the worthy, folly instead of wisdom, sickness rather than health, failures instead of the Almighty, sinners instead of the holy, the fickle, instead of the faithful, the squalid in favor of the splendid and death rather than life. And before you say, but wait a minute, what about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? They were secret believers. Yes, they were at this time, but there's a reason you know their names now. Right? Because they didn't stay secret. They couldn't. Confessing Jesus openly is a necessary part of a saving faith. We love that verse, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a glorious truth. But do you realize it means more than just confess Jesus down in your heart privately or in your church by baptism? In the context, it means confessing Him openly before a world that hates His name and will hate you for speaking His name. It means to confess Him because having Him and being identified with Him is better than gaining the whole world. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ouch! That stings because I've been there. But let me remind you of something else that sort of ties this together. That glory that comes from God is a person... It's Christ Himself. And so they love the applause and approval of a Christ-denying world more than the grace and mercy of Christ for all eternity. It's, it's It's a choice between self and Christ, between the world and what Christ gives eternally. And so we all come to that place. We have to come to this place. Whose glory are you seeking? And there comes a time, simply, dear one, where you can't have both. And we're in that time. 
So stop and consider this morning, whose glory matters to you? Is it Christ, this glorious Christ, or is it the temporary approval of this world? And as you think about that, remember who we're talking about when we talk about His glory. Remember the throne and the angels and the glorious vision of Christ reigning. And remember that all of that He willingly set aside that He might take up your stain and your sin and offers His life as an atoning sacrifice for you that you might receive in Him His life and His access to the throne of the Father and the Spirit and Himself now and in all eternity. Friend, listen, that's the source of joy that leads us into an eternity with Him. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to see Christ in His glory, to turn and trust Him, even at the cost of losing everything else that we think we value in this temporary dying world. To have Christ and life, and to share in His glory and His access to the Father, and to know Him not just at Christmas, but eternally as through union with Him we are made like Christ forever, sons and daughters of the Most High. In His name we pray. Amen.